Welcome back to Talking About Glaucoma, the podcast of indeterminate frequency in which I talk with glaucoma colleagues about hot topics in our field. This is episode number 21 for February 2013, and I'm talking with Professor Eitan Blumenthal, formerly Chief of Glaucoma at Hadassah Hospital, Ein Karim, and now Head of Ophthalmology at the Rambam Healthcare Campus in Haifa, Israel. We discuss the not-as-routine-as-you-might-think procedure of laser peripheral iridotomy and its lateral move over the years. I'm Robert Schertzer, Clinical Associate Professor at the University of British Columbia, Department of Ophthalmology and Visual Sciences, and Director of the West Coast Glaucoma Center in Vancouver, BC, and we're talking about glaucoma. Welcome, Eitan. Welcome, Rob. <laughs> let's, uh, let's talk about peripheral iridotomy. I think most people in this world are probably still doing the iridotomy underneath the upper lid, finding a, a place where they think they'll get the best coverage from incoming light. Uh, and maybe for a couple of reasons, this isn't the best place for an iridotomy. What's your feeling? I'll tell you a little bit about how I got about to do my iridotomy the way I do it today. It started about five years ago, I believe, when a patient of mine was very unhappy with a PI which, as far as you could tell, was perfect. It was around 12 or maybe 11.30, just under the lid. It was small, very peripheral. If I showed it in a photo, people would say it's the perfect iridotomy. And still the patient was very unhappy because of uh, photopsias and seeing lights. And in fact, when that patient complained to their ophthalmologist that they saw lights, the reaction was, if you see flashes of light, maybe you have a retinal detachment. So they were dilated and got really stressful and came to me and said, I was told maybe I have a retinal detachment. And about that time, there was correspondence on the... Oh, they, they didn't go into angle closure when they were dilated there, did they? Uh, no, no, oh. they didn't. Thank <laughs> so God. Be worse. <laughs> <laughs> so anyhow, um, about that time, there was correspondence on the glaucomonet about people who switch temporal. And as illogical and contrary to what we've learned and what's in the textbook, they claim that photopsias disappear, or at least they show up far less common. Right, you would think more light would be coming through so people would exactly. get more visual disturbance. Now I have to say in parenthesis that it always bothered me why patients who have had trapped and have these huge iridotomies, you know, like almost sector, which are exposed, didn't seem to complain. I would think every one of them should complain about photopsias because, I mean, you can see their iridotomies from across the room. So things are more complex than you'd think. So anyhow, on on this glaucoma net correspondence, people started saying, yeah, we do it temporally, another person, another person, and these are very established and very well-known people who have said so. And I had that patient's complaints ringing in my ears, so I right. said, let's try it, you know, what, what can I lose? And in fact, eventually, not immediately, but when I eventually complained that it convinced that specific patient to do the other eye... Oh, so at this, point they, at this point, they only had one eye that was yes, done. Okay. Yes, yes. They refused. But like six months or a year later, when I did the other eye, I did a temporal. And again, it's an N of one, but there were no complaints from the other eye. And I'll try to explain why in a minute. So I did it temporally, and, and a few things were obvious 
even after the first and second PI. The iris is, is much thinner over there, so you can use lower energy, and it just opens much more easily. So if, for instance, superiorly, it was rare that the first shot would open the PI with the energies I've used, right. I could actually go down a little with the energy, and it would sometimes open on the first shot, which really didn't happen to me before. Uh, the PIs were easier to create. And, and the reason is, in general, like you've said before, I, the, the iris just gets thinner and thinner the more I, peripheral you get, and you, you get more peripherally on, in the temporal area. Yes, I, I think it's a combination of several things. I think the superior limbus extends into the cornea more than the temporal and nasal ones. Second is, I think people's cornea isn't so by perfectly that, that, round. So that would be the, the panis that everyone yes, tends to have. Yes, the panis, yeah. I think it's less prominent temporally. Second, there, there seems to be an appearance like the cornea goes a little bit more peripherally or more transparent temporally. And occasionally you also have very nice, like, crypts or sort of bubbles, sort of holes in the iris that are easy to use. Yeah. And uh, you got to try it. You, you do several of them and... and it's very likely you'll get the same feeling. So, uh, and okay, now uh, regarding the photopsias, which I think is the main reason why people said our superior PIs aren't perfect, let's look for something else. The photopsia are patients who complain sometimes bitterly about seeing lights, lines, things moving in their field, and are, in a way, far more aggravated and, and complaining than you'd expect from something so trivial as seeing a spark of light or a line, but it's, for some reason it bothers them. Maybe it's because they really didn't have any symptoms when they came to you. Maybe it's an incidental finding and now suddenly they have something that's bothering them. Maybe it's their personality. Maybe they're younger. I don't know how to, how or why to, how to explain why that's so, but people who have photopsias complain. And these photopias don't go away very often. So anyhow, um, the common understanding of why people see photopsias is that the tear film that uh, climbs on the lid margin creates a sort of a triangle, which is like a prism. And when you blink and the lid margin tear film or the lid margin runs across the PI it's like running a prism across your second pupil which is the PI and then a light ray moves this prismatic effect causes something to move on the retina and that's noticeable as opposed to when you hold your eyes wide open and I'll talk about that in a second you don't have this phenomenon and in fact if you have a patient who's complaining of photopsias do the following experiment, which I've done. Have them hold their eyes wide open, or even you hold the lids for them, and ask them, do you see these photopias now? And I'm quite certain that they'll say no. So as long as the PI is totally covered or totally open, there are no photopsias, only when the lid margin crosses it back and forth. Right. The second thing is that if you switch to temporal PIs, Many, as far as half of your PIs, won't transilluminate for the simple reason that the PI is overlying a ciliary process. 
and that ciliary process can actually be seen through the PI hole as a brownish velvety finger or just wall behind the PI and uh, when you get used to it you can actually see it Right, and I, at, otherwise people tend to mistake that for the PI not being patent. True. You, if you're not experienced, you may think that's the pigment epithelium of the iris, but it isn't. It's a little bit further back. It's mistaken because the iris over there is very, very thin. So it's like you ask yourself, where is the iris if that's already a serially processed? Right. But it is. And it is very often no transillumination or half. Half the PI transillumination, and half doesn't, depending where the ciliary body falls. Uh, process falls and uh, what I found but again it may depend on the equipment that you use I don't really see the ciliary process when I do the PI I only see it later in the slit lamp in my in the lane in my room and maybe it has to do with the lighting or the slit or the width or for some other reason but when I do the PI I usually see like darkness where the PI hole is Mm-hmm. And in fact, sometimes, especially early on when I would go to the clinic lane and see the PI, I would see not only the ciliary process, but I could actually see it being hit and coagulated a bit or disrupted by the laser, which apparently went through the hole and um, you know damaged the surface of the ciliary process. When you don't have the ciliary processes, you can shine the laser aiming beam through the hole and the Ask the patient, do you see red? And when he, when they do, that's another indication that the PI is open. But again, if, good. if it doesn't transluminate, they will not see the red. So would you do the iridotomy exactly at 3 and 9 o'clock positions for the, uh, left, the right yeah. and left eyes? Uh, initially, I would do them at 3 and 9, which means temporally, and I'll get back to why temporal and not nasal. Uh, Recently, it's maybe two years ago or so, I've slowly realized that on the one hand, the temporal meridian is very often quite close to the upper lid, much closer than the lower lid. So I said if I want to be clearly in the open, let's do it halfway between the lids along the temporal limbus. And that usually turns out to be one clock hour below temporal. Right. Otherwise, otherwise, you're defeating the purpose. You're doing. You're getting it right at that tear film. Exactly. And you just get it so more temporally. So I, I very often would just look at where the two lids cross the temporal limbus and mm-hmm. try to be in between. Again, if there's a crypt nearby or something that, or or a vessel on the other hand, you want to miss, then you you would go a little bit up or down. Uh, initially, I would try to be as peripheral as I can. Now, I realize that even if I'm like half a millimeter or a millimeter in, inwards, that's still very peripheral when you're temporal. Uh, why not nasal? I don't have an answer for that. I think it's just as valid. For some reason, I started temporal and I want to be standardized, so I just, and I saw that there are no photopsias, and, or at least much less than I'm used to, so I just stay there. And Oh, and another thing is, uh, when I trained and read about doing a completely different laser procedure, transcleral cyclophotocoagulation, I was taught never do the 9 and 3 o'clock meridians because there's nerves and vessels running there and right. you can get a, a tonic pupil and dilated pupil and all sorts of things you don't want to get. So 9 and 3 are sacred. 
when I started doing PIs, even though I have no idea if this holds with PIs and if it's relevant, I sort of I sort of thought Good place why to avoid. go why go exactly where you're not supposed to be? And that's another reason why I go one clock hour below. But the main reason I think is to be a little bit further down from the upper lid. So now all your patients get the temporal iridotomies? Yes. I, I think for many years, I don't remember doing a superior. A, I think I think I did one a nasal PI because it just made more sense. I don't remember now if the patient had significant strabismus or because there was adhesions from something in the in the temporal area, but it just made more sense on that particular eye. And again, a patients who have like iris bombe either angle closure attack or, you know, 360 synechia from uveitis. Right. Very often I just go where it's... Wherever you can get well, a spot, especially if it's bulging forward. Yeah, I think I can go anywhere, but I go where it makes sense to go, where maybe the iris seems, seems more atrophic or mm -hmm. you're further away from the cornea or you just feel it'll be easier. So... In patients like that, I think there are no rules. You've got to make a hole, make it where it's comfortable, where it's convenient. And the worst is, if you need to enlarge this or come back again when the iris is flat, then you can go where it's more appropriate. One more thing I want to add is has to do with the kind of laser that you do PIs. While historically, I believe that PIs were initially done with an argon laser and like dozens or hundreds of shots to penetrate, right. people have switched to YAG lasers. And in general, a YAG laser is a cold laser. It disrupts the tissue, while argon is a hot laser that burns, causes coagulation. I almost exclusively use the YAG laser. I defocus the spot so that you're a little bit into the tissue. It's the same direction that you do also capsulotomies, where you want to be further away from the... IOL, you also go into the tissue or more towards the optic nerve than towards the cornea. And coming back to PIs, uh, you may start with lower energy just to make sure everything's okay, the patient doesn't jump, he gets used to the shot, to the feeling, and then you can go up. Uh, the two exceptions I have with using argon are, number one, if a patient is on coumadine, on heavy anticoagulation, I think that's reasonable because to use will, an argon. It will coagulate. To coagulate, even though I'm not really sure you need to, but you need to expect the possibility that if they bleed, you have to press for a very long time on the lens until the bleeding stops. Right. It will stop eventually, but it'll take much longer. All bleeding stops eventually. Well, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> One way or the other. But... Uh, Another example is people with very thick irises that very often an argon can help by thinning the iris. What happens... Some people don't believe in that. Do you, and I in take thinning it, the iris? Yeah. I'll tell you what you usually just, happens with me. Yeah. Uh, since I don't treat uh, Asian patients, we don't have a lot of them in Israel. Then have a they, fair amount in Vancouver. I'm so. sure, yeah. yeah. So you know all about it. Maybe you can teach me. But what happens in Israel, sometimes I... PI a patient with a dark iris, and I won't really know in advance that it's going to be thick. So I'd True. start and, and deepen and deepen, and somehow I'm not reaching the other end. And then sometime I'll stop, and I'll either take the patient to the 
uh, argon laser and, and shoot with very small spots, 50 micron, and sort of into the crater. Right. And another option is tell them, we've had enough laser for one day, let's continue next week or in two weeks, give the eye a rest, and I think everybody's happy when that happens. I'd say I've, I've done both of those, and probably thinking about it, it would be better to just do the YAG and come back on a different day because the argon does cause more inflammation. I agree. In patients and more likely with that inflammation, it could actually close where the YAG is less likely to result in closure from inflammation. Another uh, phenomenon which I've noticed, which I'll describe, I don't really understand it that well, is that sometimes if you use slightly larger spots and you're trying to hit the crater, you see the iris shrinking, and, and if you do it enough, suddenly the area you've treated is gone. It's sort of, you're pulling more iris towards where you were, and if you had a crater that has half thickness, suddenly there's nothing there. And the question yeah. is, if you wait a week, if it sort of settles back to the way it was, or, or you've lost the crater and you've got to start quote-unquote again. Wow. I'll look for that. Okay. <laughs> I don't use stretch burns. I know some people have been using them. Oh yeah, there are so many different ways. Stretch burns or the, what's it called, the drum head where you go around in circles and concentric circles mm -hmm. and drill down. Yeah, I've, I've yeah. never done things like that. And also, if you've noticed, I've refrained from talking about power, saying 2 millijoule or 5 or 10. Of course, that's very high, but... And the reason is I believe that different lasers that are set on three, for instance, will not give the exact different. same energy. And I think it'd be very frustrating if you hear that somebody can open the irises with two and you have to go up to four, when in fact the only difference is that you have different machines and right. two here is not two there. Right, and different lenses will concentrate the laser differently as well. Yes. So a lot of variables, mm -hmm. plus the variability of how different patients' tissue responds. True. Oh, yeah. So n not so simple, this little hole in the iris, is it? Uh, no, no. But I must say, and maybe as a, finaling, as a final comment, that uh, when I started, after my fellowship, you know, doing more lasers uh, in my clinic, uh, I loved doing capsulotomies. Mm -hmm. And ALTs, there were no SLTs at the time. ALTs were okay. And they were both like uh, going to a, you know, shooting a, a, with a rifle and trying to hit a target, while PIs were, to me, more aggressive, you know. That's also the only laser treatment that I give steroids after. It caused more inflammation, more tissue right. damage. And when I switched temporal, everything became more elegant, more gentle. Energies went down, peripheral damage, the laser cause went down, and I'm much happier in that respect. Even if you put aside the the hole in the iris and the result, I leave the procedure a somewhat happier person. So once you go temporal, there's no turning back. Uh, <laughs> at least for me. <laughs> Great. Well, let's all let's all do more of that then. Okay, good luck. <laughs> Thanks. Well, that's our show for today. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the RSS feed at wholeotorob.com, iTunes, or by searching within your podcast player on other devices. 
I've created new shortcuts for both the AAC version with artwork and chapter markers and the MP3 versions that you can manually enter into your podcast player as http colon slash slash iguy.tv slash podcast rss aac or iguy.tv slash podcast rss mp3 even easier just go to iguy.tv for a full list of all my shortcut links to my bits and bytes that are all over the net you can follow me on twitter by going to iguy.tv slash twitter or by following Rob Schertzer on your Twitter app, and check out my office website at iguy.tv office or westcoastglaucoma.com. Feel free to drop me a line at podcast at iguy.org for feedback, including topic ideas, and if you have subscribed through iTunes, please rate Talking About Glaucoma in the iTunes store. Please help detect and treat glaucoma by keeping yourself informed. As a reminder for Canadian ophthalmologists, each podcast episode is worth half a credit in the new Section 2 under Podcasts. You can also use any podcast to inspire you to learn more about a topic and earn even more CPD credits because personal learning projects are now worth two credits per hour. This will help make up for the fact that teaching in the clinical setting is no longer recognized for CPD credit. So subscribe to this podcast, tell your friends about it, and bug me to complete more episodes.